You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Chuck and Rachel. Chuck, I know you had maybe one of the busiest weeks ever last week, so I would love to hear about how that went. That was kind of crazy. Uh, I went to Asheville. You know, and it was it was really busy because uh, Joe is in Asheville. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, Joe and Josh, Mc- Josh uh, McCarty and Joe Minicozzi and the whole team at Urban 3 uh, I went to actually hang out with them and work with them for a couple days. Uh, I got there late on Sunday and just to let you know like how the week went, because this is pretty indicative of how the entire week went. Josh and I both stayed at Joe's house and we were sitting up and I had my computer open mm-hmm. and we were kind of looking at stuff and talking about things. And I kept looking over at my computer and, and it's got the little time thing in the lower right. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. it's getting really late. It's one one forty five or one fifty AM. Like we should go to bed. And then I realized, no, my computer's central time. It's actually <laughs> three AM. Oh my <laughs> god. Local <gosh>. time. <laughs> so uh we saw the clock hit three AM twice and uh the, you know, uh, two different nights and this was you know, we were still getting up at seven or eight in the morning to, to do some actual work. So it's always that way when you're with them because it's so um stimulating and I have, I have tons of story ideas and actually I went out there with uh, this thing that I'm working on and we were able to, we spent a great deal of time talking through it and I think they're going to be able to add some really interesting real world data to, uh, to this incremental thing that I've been working on. So I'm, I'm super jazzed about that. When can we expect that to be uh, published? You know, I, I'm I'm shooting for early June, so uh, let's let's put it at that a couple of weeks. It's pretty soon, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, what about the actual events in Asheville? I know you did a curbside chat. Uh, anything else? Some more no, the, some private meetings and things. Yeah, just private stuff. Um, but we did a curbside chat, and it was it was really well attended. Um, I, I think they had 180 people sign up, and and uh, you know. It was, the room was packed. I think it was probably that many people there. Nice. Uh, they had, uh, I had done a talk there like three years ago and, um, that one was really fun because they set it up at this, at this kind of bar with this big stage. It was a huge room. It's called the orange peel. Uh, mm-hmm. this was a more formal type of thing. Um, but uh, we had way, way more people than last time. It's kind of indicative. You know, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about Michigan later on. And we see the same thing. Like every time I go back to the area, the audience grows and grows and grows. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fun because I really connected with people. They had great questions at the end. Uh, you know, you stand up front of a group of nearly 200 people and you can kind of start to read faces and, and see where the group is at. And they were completely into it. Um, Asheville is a great city. Uh, a lot of their greatness is indicative of the fact that in the 50s and 60s and 70s, when everybody was tearing things down, they were broke and didn't have the money to do it. And so hmm. in the 90s, they've been able to go back and, and reclaim these buildings that are great buildings that they never bothered to get rid of. 
But sadly, like most other cities in North America, they're surrounded by miles and miles of really bad development. Yeah. Uh, we went out and took some video of some of this stuff. I think the thing that's tragic about that part of Asheville is that Asheville has such beautiful view sheds, such beautiful – I mean, they have the mountains. Uh, you've got just great vegetation. You've got good elevation change. And it's just bizarre for me, a Minnesotan, where it's pretty darn flat here, uh, to see someone go three-fourths of a way up a mountain, blast and clear out a flat spot and put in a, stri- a strip mall, you know? <sighs> yeah. And you know, all the sewer and water that would be required to make that elevation change. I mean, th- these are monumental level of investments for just the lowest one life cycle, you know, burn through it kind of development pattern. And it, it's just, it's shocking and bizarre to me, but you know, maybe it shouldn't be at this point. So then you were home for, I don't know how many hours, a few, and Six. then headed off to Ottawa County, Michigan. Home, home being the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport. Oh, you didn't get to <laughs> I go never actually, back to Brainerd. I never actually made it home. No, it, when uh-huh. I landed, had I gotten in my car and driven home, uh, I could have got to spend about half an hour at home. Of course, no oh. one else was there. I thought at the you time. had a meeting that night or something. No, uh, it didn't work out that way. Yeah, got it. Busy week. Okay, so then you made it to Ottawa County, Michigan. I did, and that was. Well, it looks like it was a, a whole day of workshops. Yeah, that um, was. Were you that, leading the whole day, or were yeah. there other people speaking? I I basically, I basically lectured for six and a half hours. Um, That's pretty intense. Yeah, it was really intense, Good and thing I was kind of six and a half hours of material. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I, and I've I've uh, you know I've done this same kind of thing a couple maybe like four other times, mm-hmm. um, and I got there, and for some reason I was expecting this to be like the four other times where you had a group of maybe like twenty five or thirty people, and you were doing this deep dive. Yeah. No, th- there was 150 people there. Oh, wow. It was a big packed room. Mm-hmm. And it kind of made me change the approach a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. Um, no, but it, it went great. I mean, uh, you can see in something like that when it goes, I mean, we started at 8.30 a.m. and we finished at 4, uh, or quarter after 4, actually. Um, y- you can tell, uh, you know, if the crowds thin out after lunch, if people start to sneak out early, we had mm-hmm. like none of that or very little of that. Um, it was, uh, you know, we kept, we kept people there the whole time and they were, uh, participating. Uh, they had a, a lot of great questions and a lot of good feedback after the fact. I did a curbside chat. I did, uh, I talked about neighborhood investments did a whole section on transportation and transportation investments and improvements and how those relate to building a strong town. And then we finished up with a conversation about big box stores because they, they specifically wanted to talk about that. Hmm. So it was a great day. I mean, I I'm, I'm, was really jazzed to do it. It was a lot of fun. Cool. And then this week you are again heading out to McAllister, Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, what do you What are your thoughts on that one? Looks like it's going to be another, probably curbside chat type thing for a luncheon. Yeah. Well, this is very much. I mean, this is what we're seeing a lot of. 
the Michigan one is a really good example of this. I was, uh, I think this was my fifth time in this part of Michigan, not this exact city, but this area. Yeah. And I had so many people come up to me and say, hey, I heard you speak in Kalamazoo. I heard you speak in Lansing. I heard you speak, uh, cool. you know, in Saginaw. I, it, and, and, and so what you see is that people have heard uh, my, our talks, you know, to a smaller group. And then I put together these larger things. The event organizers had seen me over a year ago and said, we've got to bring you to Ottawa County and have you be part of this. Nice. It, it, you know, and share this message with, with many more people at the same time. In Oklahoma, it's the same thing. Uh, I, a couple of years ago, was part of a, a tour that went around uh, Oklahoma, started in Oklahoma City and went uh, north and south and went to like four or five different places. Hmm. Uh, I've been to Norman now a couple of times where uh, the university is. And uh, we had our, of course, had our summit there. And, yeah, I bet and, some of the people who were at the summit will be at this event too. Some well, I actually met the people from this event at our summit. Oh, um, cool. They had uh, they had heard me speak a, a, a while earlier, I think in Tulsa, mm -hmm. and said we'd like to make this event happen. They got a hold of Michelle, and so yeah, what you what we see so much of is that once we get a little bit of momentum, things start to to build. And we can see the readership growing. We can see the audience growing. And then, you know, people want you to come back and basically um, d tell their friends and neighbors the same story, but just a little bit better maybe than what they're telling it uh, themselves. And then, they, you know, they want to hear it again. Mm -hmm. So it, every time back, there's more and more and more people. And I, I guess for me, that's what the exciting part is. I, you know, get to go back and talk to some people that I met before, but then, you know, they bring along this whole like posse of compadres with them to uh, expand the message. And, and hopefully next time it will be even more and even more and even more. Today you published an article about a document that came from Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm curious about when did you encounter that when you were, I think you were in Omaha recently, right? Is that when this yeah. whole thing came up? Exactly. Yeah. So, so I was tell me about that. And I also, gave, uh, I wonder yeah. how they are going to respond to this if they happen to come across this article on our website because it's not super complimentary. But <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I hope they have some shame or some, you know, a different, a Reflection. change of emphasis. Yeah. Reflection. So I, I was in Omaha and last month, about a month ago, actually, and I gave a transportation presentation. Uh, the transportation presentation starts out with our funding problem and says like, this is not a solvable funding problem and here's why. Mm -hmm. And you know, in order for us to deal with this, we have to think differently about our transportation system. And then you have, you know, 45 minutes of here's how you think differently about this. And, and here's what we should be doing differently. It's a really effective way to communicate something that in our common culture today and our, our politics, our political dialogue is just not part of the conversation. Our, our conversation today is how do we get more money to continue doing what we're doing? Well, as part of presenting this, I had a number of people afterward who were part of this transportation committee. Let me get the exact name, the transportation technical advisory committee. This is part of their MPO system. So the MPOs 
uh, are the organization that the federal money flows through. So they are, are basically lead the project selection process for how federal dollar, federal transportation money is going to be spent. Mm-hmm. So they had this committee that had met earlier in the day. And the feedback that I got from some of the people who were at both meetings was, wow, this is really in sharp contrast to what we talked about today. And in fact, what we talked about today were all these projects that we wanted to do and all these designs that we had and acquiring right away and putting in overpasses and, you know, all, all this expansion that we were planning to do. But yet the presentation did allude to the fact that we didn't have enough money to do it. Like we're tragically to the fact. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I was able to get a copy of the presentation and it was bizarre because the first, you know, 12 slides in the presentation go through and say, you know, here's, here's how we planned. Here's what we've done. Here's the different analysis we've done. Here's the area we've looked at. And then, it and like the thirteenth slide is oh by the way, we have this big gap in funding. Which when they put it up, it's seven point six billion dollars of projects they're planning to do, mm-hmm. and only three point nine billion dollars of funding. They they basically have half the money that they need to. Yep. And we're not talking about small amounts of money. We're talking about like thirty thousand dollars per family, uh, you know, in in Omaha. Th- this is not like chump change. This is not money they're ever going to get. Basically. Yeah. And then, you know, after one slide of, hey, we have this, like, tragic funding crisis, they have another, like, 18 slides or something like that going through, like, very technical details of here's our level of service at this intersection. Here's uh, the right-of-way acquisition we're going to do here. Here's the extra two lanes we're going to build in this part of town here. And the juxtaposition of this is just bizarre. I I I tried to use the analogy Imagine that I showed up to one of our board meetings and, you know, my budget was for you know, 790000 a year. And, I, and then I said, not our budget. <laughs> no, no. And then I said, but we only have 390000 in revenue coming in. The, the board would like stop the meeting right there. Like, don't bother telling us all the stuff we're going to do. How are we going to, how are we going to deal with this budget crisis? How are we going to actually, um, you know, uh, do a program or do an approach that's within our resources. Mm-hmm. This is completely absent, not just from the Omaha transportation discussion, but from the way MPOs operate all over the country. They actually have an incentive to create as much need and demand as possible uh, to be able to turn around to the federal government and say, look, we're tragically underfunded. We need a ton more money. The, the problem is, when we do it that way, uh, we tend to uh, we 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 tend to do a very poor job reconciling competing objectives. So we can get the big project built, uh, but we can't get the small nuanced stuff. So you can actually you know cross the street. We can get the huge transit line built, but we can't uh, find Fill the money. The yeah, well, or to make it so you can actually walk to the bus stop, right? Yep. Um, and and this is a byproduct of the way we fund transportation. Uh, we have created an incentive where the local MPOs have to generate as many projects as they can, look as underfunded as possible. Uh, yet when we actually get to the ground, there's tons of money. It's just being allocated to projects that are really really bad. This Nebraska case, in you know, a 
30-slide presentation exactly demonstrates the problem. We don't look at financial constraints as actual constraints. The obsession is creating uh, you know, greater demand, showing yourself to be way underfunded, and that way you can compel people higher up in the food chain to throw more money your way. It's a bad way to build a city. Yeah, and if you started reading this article and saw the word Omaha and were like, oh, this isn't about me, um, this is definitely about all of our cities because this happens everywhere. Exactly. This is the exact same thing. I, did you see that slide they had with like their, the different things they were trying to accomplish? The, you know, uh, the mobility measures, environmental yeah. measures, that slide? Yes, I did. Yeah. And you, you look at that and you're like, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. The, the thing is, we just try to like brute force our way to those things. You know? uh, what is totally lacking from the conversation is any trade-off. You know, when, when you expand that highway out on the edge, yes, you can solve the problem of people sitting in traffic right there, but then you induce people to drive more. You, you know, uh, eventually create more congestion than you had to begin with. And any air quality impact you were trying to mitigate is now completely offset. We never have these conversations because that fact becomes just another reason to go back for more funding in the future. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a sick, broken system, really. That, and I, I want to make sure people are not hearing me wrong. I'm not suggesting that transportation doesn't need more funding, and I'm not suggesting that uh, you know government bureaucrats are lazy or selfish or you know the problem here is we're taxed too much or taxed too little. The problem here is that we have a process that is not able to discern between competing objectives. It just says yes to all objectives. And because it does that, it actually doesn't achieve any of them. And that's the core problem here. And money and the way we fund it is the reason why we never get to those core conversations. Yeah, you had a really good summary at the end of the article that just, yeah, explains all of these um, measures that the Omaha group was trying to achieve. And you say that we actually could achieve all of those things, um, but it's not through building huge highways or huge light rail systems or any of the things that they probably outlined in their presentation. I think the analogy with our organization is a really good one. There, there were times in the past when we had uh, you know, very strong ideas about what we thought we should do as an organization. And had we been able to get the money, uh, we might have pursued some of those. And I think in retrospect, those were really bad ideas. It was, in a sense, the financial constraints um, that kind of forced us to reevaluate our approach, look at what we could do with less, mm-hmm. and you know, change some, basically balance some competing objectives. We've been able to do healthy budget increases every year, and we certainly always have demands and always have things we could do more of. But I, you know, I've I've long thought if you just poured tons and tons of money on strong towns, would we be a better organization? I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I think if if our budget this year, which is like three hundred fifty thousand, all of a sudden went to two million dollars. Would we get $2 million worth of effort out of it? I, I don't think so. I, I think we would screw that up. If our budget went from 350000 to 700000 um, would we be, make effective use of that? Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we know what to do with that amount of money. 
Definitely. I see the same thing with the MPOs. We, we, we try to solve all these problems with money. And what it does is it keeps us from thinking and it keeps us from being critical and it keeps us from actually uh, evaluating uh, alternatives that would be much better for us. Yeah, at Strong Towns, we say that our, our funding model is tied to the success of our organization. So that's why we've chosen to be funded through membership donations and not through, you know, huge grants that we might apply for and get, you know, right. $200,000 from in one go. Um, so on that note, I would like to thank our new and renewing members to Strong Towns from last week. Matthew Curran of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Alan Emtage of Alpharetta, Georgia, Daniel Matthews of Orlando, Florida, Bob and Beth Passy of Baxter, Minnesota, and Sage Turner of Asheville, North Carolina. Thank you guys so much for being members. And we are going to be having a membership drive in a few weeks because that's really important for us, and that's uh, how we stay afloat in doing all the things that you guys um, hopefully love and appreciate that we do, um, changing the conversation in America about growth and development. So thank you to all of our existing members, uh, new and renewing. Yes, thank you. Did you um, catch that, uh, the, the one from Baxter there? Yeah, do you know those people, I'm guessing? I, I'm, I'm guessing they were at the presentation I gave with the, uh, the oh, League, the of, League of, of Women Voters. Voters. Yeah, cool. Um, but yeah, Baxter, for those of you that don't recognize that, Brainerd, the city I live in now, the right adjacent city is Baxter. And actually, the, the original Marone homestead, where I grew up as a kid, is in Baxter. So Brainerd and Baxter are essentially the traditional and then the suburban city. Um, mm -hmm. Baxter is the where the bypass goes through, and they have all the the big box and all that stuff. So it's the the other model I've been able to kind of study by living here. Yeah, and it looks like uh, the last person on that list was someone from Asheville, North Carolina. So I'm guessing. They also saw your recent presentation and yeah, thought it was worth fantastic. supporting. So, well, and Matt from down in uh, Minneapolis, I you know ran into him, so I appreciate that as well. Yeah. yeah. So, what have you been uh, reading if you've had time in between? Oh my gosh! Days? Yes, you, I, I I totally forgot that we were going to talk. So, um, I have I have gone through a couple of the most incredible books. I mean. I started out the year thinking like, well, this will be my uh, book of the year. And then I, every time I read a new one, I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be it. So there's a book that I was turned on to called Catastrophic Care. Okay. And it's about the healthcare system. Let me see if I can get the subtitle here because this was such a good book. How it's Catastrophic Care, How American Healthcare Killed My Father and How We Can Fix It by David Goldhill. And I guess if I had to summarize this for people in one sentence, it would be what strong towns is to cities. This book is to healthcare. Mm. It, it takes all the like base assumptions that you have about how the system should work and is working and kind of all the like day-to-day -day concerns that were, you know, tied up in. And it steps back and looks at the big picture, the underlying things that are affecting healthcare, and why it works the way that it doesn't work the way that it does, mm -hmm. and then what needs to what you know what a great system should look like and how we would transition to that. I was enraptured with this book. I found every moment of it to be brilliant, and you know it. it for those of you that uh, are like me 
where you're just bewildered by the the fact that you can go to the grocery store and get bread and food, but you can't go to the doctor and get you know any type of service at any price that makes any sense. Right. Um, there's a lot of talk in here about markets and how markets work, and I found it incredibly refreshing, and you know very straightforward and very empowering. It, it was a I, I kind of feel like it is a prerequisite for having an intelligent conversation about healthcare. Interesting. He actually refers to, and I think this is, he uses this analogy throughout the entire book, and I think it's really good. He he says that healthcare is like, uh, you know, creatures on the Galapagos Island, and they've just evolved over decades in a very weird way. And so if you're on the island, reality is different than if you're off the island. If you're hmm. on the island, certain things make sense and certain words are used and certain conversations uh, are, are, you know, are part of the just day-to-day living. But if you're off the island, if you're not part of this culture, you look at it and none of it makes any sense at all. It's this strange, foreign, weird place that seems to be outside of the natural laws of the way things are done. And I felt that that analogy was very true. It, it, it goes to, you know, the transportation planning group in Omaha, uh, it goes to MPOs across the country. It goes to the way cities budget for transportation improvements. And, and here now it's being applied to the healthcare system in a way that was very illuminating for me. I, I, I can't recommend this book strongly enough to people. I also went through, just because I enjoy, after, after every presidential election, there's always like one book that kind of documents what, you know, what happened inside the campaign. Yeah. And I find, you know, I find them interesting because not because I find politics interesting because I'm actually getting I've actually been for a long time kind of bored with the day to day politics. But campaigns are like a finite sprint um, yeah. where a lot of like chaotic things happen and, you know, how people react to them or not. I think there's a lot of instruction there. There's a book about the Clinton campaign called Shattered and. I, I I went through that. It was a I had it on audiobook. It was a really like light, easy listen. One of those you can do from plane to plane, and you know that kind of thing. And I went through that last week too, and I, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. I thought it was insightful, and it gave me some, you know, a deeper sense of some of the struggles and and some of the myopia that happened in the Hillary campaign. I, I'll say. It's, it's interesting because in a Nassim Taleb kind of way, uh, one of the big dynamics in the campaign were between the kind of old school, old guard. We need to go out and uh, you know have boots on the ground, press the flesh, um, do some polling. And then this new school analytics type of approach where you know we don't have to do any of that. We know exactly what precinct we need to target with exactly what message. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, the, the, their faith was in the analytics. And it was a lot of the old school people who I, I think turned out to be right. Um, your state of Wisconsin is you know, a good example of this. Yeah. Hillary Clinton, I don't believe, ever went to Wisconsin. No, she never visited. Right. And she was scheduled to a couple of times – but their analytics model were saying, you know, uh, don't bother. We got Wisconsin in the bag. Uh, you, you know, you just Great have mistake. to, yeah, you have to go to these other places 
um, where you know things are tighter and we can turn precincts. And it was very interesting because I think by way of analogy, uh, we're overwhelmed with data today, and you hear people talk you know, with a lot of confidence based on what they see in these models that they put together. You know, whether it is things like traffic modeling. Uh, or future financial projections, or even things like climate change, we become so um, impressed with our ability to model the world and think that it represents reality. Yet, time and time and time again, when we have these finite events that come up that test our models, whether it's the banking crisis in 08 or whether it's you know the Hillary Clinton campaign in, in 2016, what we see is that our ability to model complex systems is far less robust than what we pretend it is. So that was my main takeaway. I, I thought the book was, uh, if you're interested in politics, I thought it was a, a, a fascinating dive into uh, a, 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 a tragic and maybe doomed from the start campaign, really. Yeah. Interesting topic for yeah. research, for sure. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up for today, but we've got um, a lot of podcasts that are saved up in our in our bank so we'll see hey, what before we go on thursday yes tell me about uh public art week oh yeah that i was I, I mean Did i was see any of it i was a wall from this and i i saw a little bit of it but no not much how did it go and uh I, how you feeling monday morning the week after uh, I thought it was interesting and it was fun to cover some topics that are pretty outside the realm of stuff that we would normally cover. Of course, we made the connection to Strong Towns issues, but um, that was that was interesting. Um, we had a great piece from Grayson that kicked off the week that talked about basically how to analyze the return on investment for public art. Um, Marielle Brown wrote a really good piece about interactive public art. Um, I did some fun interviews. I, I enjoyed producing the week. Um, yeah. I don't know that it was a particularly high traffic week, um, but that doesn't necessarily surprise me. Um, but yeah, the two podcasts that I released, I thought were both really interesting people. One was about, have you ever been to Northern Spark in, uh, in the Twin Cities? It's an annual no. all-night art festival that happens just for one night a year. Um, this week, this year, it's, uh, I think June 10th. Um, and they just do like events all over the city. Um, you know, performance art, temporary art. Um, it's yeah, it's all free public, um, pretty amazing opportunity. Um, I've been there once like four years ago. So I interviewed one of the organizers of that, uh, and then, Oh, I interviewed Max's sister who is a muralist. Um, and has done public murals in several different places, including, I thought, most interestingly, she's done murals on the sides of, like, the temporary wood construction walls that are put up around a construction site um, in New York. And so that that was a really interesting conversation to have with her. Max's sister. Max, our co-worker. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I did read that article in the New York Times, and I thought it was a, a, amazing. She seems like an amazing person, which doesn't surprise me because Max is an amazing person. Yeah, and now um, she's working for a, um, and I forget what city, it, East Hampton, Massachusetts, um, yeah. where she's, she's in like a, a city-funded position doing art and um, public engagement and things like that. 
Um, so, which I thought was an interesting angle to get after, especially after hearing her talk about being just, you know, an independent public artist and now she's working in a more, um, like government capacity to do similar things. So speaking of our colleagues, I, I did read the post from one of our former colleagues. Yeah. About Jason. The, uh, yeah. That was a yep. good one too. Yeah. I'm, I was very, I'm very familiar with that debate and that, uh, controversy back in, the floods in 97, I think it was, mm -hmm. maybe it was, that was, that was, I, I think that was the one I was in the national guard at the time and actually got sent out to Moorhead, oh. um, the Minnesota side of the river. Yeah. Um, but Grand Forks had this terrible devastation in their downtown. And one of the ways that they dealt with the cleanup is they made a couple essentially pocket parks. Um, and now they're dealing with the fact that these temporary things need to move on to uh, another, you know, another use. Yeah, that will, and, in this case, provide housing and uh, oh, yeah. retail space and a tax base versus a park that is costing the city money. Right. Well, and I, I think it's interesting because, you know, the the response to this, you know, that, that it should be left as a park because it's green space and we shouldn't, you know, parks are inviolable. Like they, they mm -hmm. what it does is it, it makes the effort to transition property, um, like useless. Like why, why would you ever, cause basically what they did is they took a vacant abandoned lot and they activated it with what they could do right now. Um, mm -hmm. you know, as a way to kind of get things going and, and voila, it's been really successful. They've had people there and stuff going on and downtown Grand Forks has become a really spectacular place. Um, now you go in and you say, well, okay, now we're going to stunt its progression here. We're just saying, yeah, just you know, freeze no. it in time, right? Lock it in place. Exactly. Put it under glass. Can't change. First of all, no one's ever going to go put in a pocket park again as a way to transition to, to something else. Mm -hmm. um, like that strategy will be a loser if you can't do anything else with it then. Um, and so you're just going to stagnate cities. It, cities are not designed to, to stagnate. There's plenty of places to put in more pocket parks in Grand Forks. So yeah, I, and I, as I, he pointed out in this article, there are several other public green spaces and parks you know, within like blocks of this one. Yeah. This is yeah. an issue that uh, it rang some bells for me because I've had over my couple of years working for Strong Towns, uh, probably every few months somebody sends me an email along the lines of, we have a beloved park, wilderness area, green space, and then there's some people in our town that are trying to build, you know, whatever it is, an apartment, uh, you know, mixed use retail, something they're trying to take away our green space. Like, will you as a strong towns, you know, staff member, um, like help us shine some light on this issue. Uh, like come to our meeting. If, if I've had a couple of people from Milwaukee approach me about this kind of thing. And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't, you know, it's usually an issue that's I'm detached from. It's not in my community. So I'm not going to like, right. you know, become an advocate for it or something. But most of the time when I look into it, I'm like, well, you have, you know, acres and acres of green space. You can't develop, you know, one block of that into something right. that's going to support your community. I, I can't really support your, your desire to just preserve this thing forever. Right. Um, and most yeah. of us have, you know, unless you live in New York City and then you have Central Park, so you can't really complain. Like everyone has a lot more green space around them than I think they probably think they do. Well, and, and I mean, green space and parks are critically important, 
But the idea that, you know, we would uh, take a, a city block that used to be occupied by a building is now turned into, you know, a temporary, I would always call it a temporary park, you know, temporarily turned into a park yeah. because nothing else would go in there and now has development pressure to put something back. The, the idea that we would fight against that is to me kind of the definition of short-sighted or the, the definition of being kind of egocentric, really. Um, you know, the city is for us now, our time, all, all else, you know, to the side. So, Yeah, definitely check out that article from our former colleague, Jason Schaefer. All right. All right. Thank you. Yep. Take care, everyone, and have a great week. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.